Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America by Christian Williams. This is the first of two parts of Chapter 9, entitled Your Friendly Neighborhood Police State. The difficulties of crowd control have shown the need for police to balance their reliance on force against the possibility of containment, negotiation, and the co-optation of leadership. Over-reliance on either approach is likely to lead to disaster. Naked repression can create or escalate resistance and discredit the authorities, while resting on the framework of institutionalized dissent can leave the state's forces unprepared for tactical innovations or renewed militancy among protesters. The challenge for police is to chart a middle course between the WTO protests in Seattle and the massacre at Kent State. Though drawn from their experiences with protests and riots, these lessons have come to shape the development of police strategy overall. They have thus given rise to the seemingly incongruous, but in fact complementary, trends of militarization and community policing. Bringing the war home. Militarization is a buzzword, popular chiefly among critics of the police. The term is in some sense pejorative, as military incursions into the domestic sphere are taboo in, in liberal democracies. But militarization is rarely defined, and the use of the word is often superficial. This is true in two senses. First, the term is sometimes chosen more for its sinister connotations than for any literal meaning. Second, it's used to describe the most obvious aspects of policing, the equipment, uniforms, and weaponry. By implication, armored cars, riot gear, and assault rifles evidence militarization. The friendly cop on the beat does not. This dichotomy is false and dangerous. It misconstrues the nature of militarization and undermines its impact. Militarization affects not only police paraphernalia, but the police mission, the roles of violence and intelligence, police ideology, rhetoric, training, and organization. A leading scholar of militarization, Peter Kraska, offers this definition. Quote, Militarization can be defined in its broadest terms as the social process in which society organizes itself for the production of violence or the threat thereof." Unquote. He goes on to list the following tangible indices of this sort of high modern militarization. 1. A blurring of external and internal security functions leading to a targeting of civilian populations, internal security threats, and a focus on aggregate populations as potential internal insurgents. 2. An avoidance of overt or lethal violence, with a greater emphasis placed on information gathering and processing, surveillance work, and less than lethal technologies. 3. An ideology and theoretical framework of militarism that stresses that effective problem solving requires state force, technology, armament, intelligence gathering, aggressive suppression efforts, and other assorted activities commensurate with modern military thinking and operations. 4. Criminal justice practices guided by the ideological framework of militarism, such as the use of special operations paramilitary teams in policing and corrections, policing activities that emphasize military tactics such as drug, gun, and gang suppression, and punishment models based on the military boot camp. 5. Purchasing, loaning, donation, and use of actual material products that can be characterized as militaristic, including a range of military armaments, transportation devices, surveillance equipment, and military-style garb. 6. A rapidly developing collaboration at the highest level of the governmental and corporate worlds between the defense industry and the crime control industry. 7. The use of military language within political and popular culture to characterize the social problems of drugs, crime, and social disorder. By these standards, the contemporary American police department is highly militarized in ways that its 19th century counterpart was not. Developments in crowd control and intelligence have each, played, have each placed the police on this course, 
as have police ideology and the institution's rapidly advancing mode of organization. Of course, the rhetoric of policing and of police reform has long made use of a military analogy, though in practice this amounted to little more than instituting ranks and requiring firearms training. But following the crises of the 1960s, this analogy was suddenly taken far more seriously. The rhetoric, of course, never really went out of style, but it gained a more literal reading than had been possible before. Radicals were calling on America to bring the war home, and policymakers very quietly decided to do just that. From occasional shootouts to routine patrol. The authorities responded to the disorder of the 1960s by increasing the cops' funding, upgrading their equipment, and reorganizing departments along more military lines. To, to this end, the National Institute of Justice, the NIJ, was founded in 1968, and it immediately set about transferring Defense Department technology to the police. Over the next 10 years, the NIJ outfitted police with military wonders like night vision goggles, soft body armor, forensic and computer equipment, surveillance devices, and retired army helicopters. Police planning also quickly turned in a more martial direction. In 1969, the NYPD began planning construction of its command and control center. For models, it visited military installations like the Pentagon and the Strategic Air Command headquarters. Mayor John Lindsay described the new center aptly as a war room. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, Daryl Gates was reinventing the metro division of the LAPD. Quote, Breaking from LAPD tradition, we formed 16 military-type squads with a sergeant in charge of each 10-man squad, and then we meshed them into two platoons, each headed by a lieutenant. They were given missions for which they were responsible. They developed the approach and the tactics without direction from above. Their only admonishment was to maintain departmental policy and rules." Unquote. Gates's adaptation of military organization to law enforcement was remarkable, and it did not end with the squad and platoon structures. Military tactics were soon adopted as well, most famously with the creation of the SWAT team. The Los Angeles Police Department's Special Weapons and Tactics Team became the first of many similar units, generically termed Police Paramilitary Units, or PPUs. SWAT was developed in secret during the late 60s, training with Marines at Camp Pendleton. Though ostensibly designed to handle snipers, the team's first mission was a 1969 raid on the headquarters of the Black Panther Party. A shootout ensued, followed by a long standoff. Growing impatient, the SWAT team requested and received a Marine Corps grenade launcher, but the Panthers surrendered before it could be put to use. Shortly thereafter, SWAT raided a house where members of the Symbionese Liberation Army, SLA, were hiding out. Again a shootout ensued, followed by a long standoff. This time, SWAT asked for fragmentation grenades, and Gates refused. But no matter. When police fired tear gas into the house, it caught fire and burned to the ground. Six SLA members died in the blaze. Gates later expressed his concern. Quote, At the moment, my main concern was whether P Patty Hearst had been inside. I didn't give a shit about the others. Unquote. Apparently, his regard for the neighbors was no higher. No effort had been made to evacuate the neighborhood before the raid or during the standoff. Nearby homes were damaged in the fire, and several houses were riddled with bullets. The LAPD SWAT team was deployed 200 times in its first two years. Since then, paramilitary police units have become a nationwide phenomenon, and their rate of use has sharply increased. In 1980, PPUs were deployed 2,884 times across the country. Fifteen years later, in 1995, that number had risen to 29,962. In part, PPUs are deployed more often simply because there are more of them to deploy. 
many small departments have formed their own paramilitary units, whereas before they relied on those of larger cities or the state police in the rare event of an emergency. After all, how often do campus police at the University of Central Florida face sniper fire, a barricaded suspect, or a hostage situation? Yet, they have their own SWAT team. Many factors promoted the spread of paramilitary units, including the existence of a ready-to-use model, the availability of equipment and training, and the professional prestige attached to the highly specialized teams. The nationwide, the nationwide craze for SWAT teams marks an advance in the militarization of the police, but as importantly, the factors sustaining this trend also indicate militarization. Perhaps more troubling than the replication of the SWAT model is the expansion of the SWAT mission. Since 1994, Fresno, California has used its PPU, the Violent Crime Suppression Unit, VCSU, to patrol its southwest ghettos. Wearing black fatigues, combat boots, and body armor, the officers routinely patrol with MP-54 submachine guns, helicopters, and dogs. First deployed after a wave of gang violence, including attacks on police officers, the VCSU quickly went from raiding houses to stopping cars, interrogating suspicious persons, and clearing people off street corners. These street corner sweeps represent an impressive display of force, beginning with a pyrotechnic flashbang grenade. Police then move in with their guns drawn, sometimes supported by a canine unit. Everyone in the area is forced to the ground and civilian dogs are shot on sight. The suspects in the area are photographed, interrogated, checked for warrants, and entered into a computerized database. One Fresno cop explains the intended scope of these files. Quote, if you're 21, male, living in one of these neighborhoods, been in Fresno for 10 years, and you're not in our computer, then there's definitely a problem. Unquote. The VCSU produces impressive figures marking its activity. Since it started patrolling Fresno's streets, misdemeanor arrests have increased 48.3%. Meanwhile, the unit averages one shooting every three months. Fresno is not alone in its use of paramilitary police for routine patrol. By 1999, there were 94 departments across the country similarly deploying their SWAT teams. One commander described his department's approach, quote, We're into saturation patrols in hotspots. We do a lot of work with the SWAT unit because we have bigger guns. We send out two two to four men cars we look for minor violations and do jump outs, either on people on the street or automobiles. After we jump out, the second car provides a periphery cover with an ostentatious display of weaponry. We're sending a clear message. If the shootings don't stop, we'll shoot someone." Unquote. The application of paramilitary techniques in routine, i.e. non-emergency, law enforcement situations has been turned, termed the normalization of paramilitary units. This process works in two complementary directions. First, the scope of activity considered appropriate for specialized units becomes even wider. In military jargon, this is referred to as mission creep, a suitably unpleasant sounding term. Second, the increased use of the specialized team promotes the view that their military organization's skills and equipment are well suited to general police work. The regular police then come to resemble the paramilitary units. Both tendencies advance the militarization of the police, and both have been encouraged by the current efforts at drug prohibition. The Drug War and Other Dangerous Habits The tendency for mission creep, the temptation to use specialized forces for a widening range of activities, is surely understandable. The reasoning from a managerial perspective is pretty clear. Where such units exist, commanders are loath to waste their capabilities. 
to justify their continued existence, in particular their continued funding, they must be used. Inactivity is bureaucratic suicide. So the mission of these units expands, and as it expands, their operations become normalized. Quote, because riots and hostage takings are relatively rare, SSU, Denver's Special Service Unit, has a lot of time on its hands, notwithstanding its demanding training requirements. So in its spare time, which has amounted to 90%, it has been doing saturation patrolling. Unquote. Saturation patrolling offers one solution for the need to keep paramilitary teams busy between emergencies. Likewise, mundane police duties can be framed as emergencies, or alternately, the cops may actually create emergencies. This, in essence, is what the police do when they use paramilitary units to perform warrant work. Warrant work is actually something of a misnomer, since many departments claim that they don't need a warrant when they fear that evidence would be destroyed during the time it takes to contact a judge. The searchers at issue are usually drug-related. One commander describes the procedure, quote, Our unit storms the residence with a full display of weaponry so we can get the drugs before they're flushed, unquote. Paramilitary units usually specialize in no-knock, no-knock, or dynamic entries, meaning that they avoid announcing their presence until they've knocked down the door and are charging into the house. The LAPD, in its characteristic style, gave its SWAT team an armored car with a battering ram attached. Rather than breaking down the door, the cops drive the vehicle straight through the wall. No-knock entries are dangerous for everyone involved, cops, suspects, bystanders. The raids usually occur before dawn, the residents are usually asleep, and then disoriented by the sudden intrusion. There is no warning, and sleepy residents may not always understand that the men breaking down their door are police. At the same time, police procedures allow terribly little room for error. Stan Goff, a retired Special Forces Sergeant and SWAT trainer, says that he teaches cops to, quote, Look at hands. If there's a weapon in their hands during a dynamic entry, it does not matter what that weapon is doing. If there's a weapon in their hands, that person dies. It's automatic. Unquote. Predictably, these raids sometimes end in disaster. When the Visalia, California SWAT team raided Alfonso Hernandez's apartment in 1998, the teenager opened fire, injuring one officer. The police fired back without restraint, hitting Hernandez 39 times and killing him on the spot. Some of their bullets traveled through the walls into neighboring apartments. In addition to Hernandez, another man in the apartment, Emilio Trevino, was killed. Trevino was seeking refuge in a corner when he was shot five times. No-knock raids are inherently dangerous, but in most cases altogether avoidable. That is because there's usually no emergency before the raid begins. If we take current drug laws for granted, it's clear that this approach places citizens and police alike at unnecessary risk. The fact that such risks are considered normal and thought to represent an acceptable price for maintaining current policy says a great deal about the pre prevalence of militarized thinking. As Peter Kraska remarks, quote, Only an intensive ideology of militarism could drive much of the police institution into believing that forced invasions of people's private residences using police units designed around the Navy SEALs model for the purpose of conducting a crude investigation into minor drug law infractions are a reasonable and beneficial crime control tactic. Unquote. For their part, police sometimes complain that the war metaphor against crime or against drugs is not taken literally enough. Never one for understatement, former LAPD Chief Daryl Gates once told the Senate Judiciary Committee, quote, the casual drug user should be taken out and shot, unquote. When Los Angeles Times reporter Ron Ostrow asked him if he meant that, the chief was glad to explain, quote, 
Yeah, Ron, I did. If we have people who smoke a little pot or snort a little coke who simply want to go out and party and use drugs, I think they ought to be taken out and shot. Because if this is the war on drugs, they're giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Unquote. Self-righteousness and self-interest often lean on each other suspiciously. Behind their moral platitudes and somber denunciations, the police have always been major beneficiaries of vice, drugs, gambling, and prostitution. In the 19th century, selective enforcement of vice laws stood to profit the individual cops, their commanders, and their political masters. The police stood at the center of a multifaceted protection racket. The threat of raids kept the owners of illegal saloons, gambling houses, brothels, and opium dens obedient and willing to pay the going rate. Or the promise of protection might be withheld for either political or commercial reasons, that is, to eliminate a source of income for a rival political faction, or to give the competitive edge to a loyal client. And the thing that made all this corruption possible was the puritanical obsession with other people's free time. At the end of the 20th century, things looked a little different. At the lowest levels of the law enforcement ladder, the police still sometimes sold protection to street-level drug dealers, pimps, and prostitutes, or, conversely, they offered them the opposite of protection, robbing them of guns, drugs, and money, assaulting them, and making no arrest. As bad as this was, it was only a small-time illegal version of official policy. On a much wider scale and with much lower risk, entire departments were involved in exactly the same sort of extortion, under the guise of asset forfeiture. First introduced by a 1970 anti-racketeering law, the irony here is sickening, the practice of seasoning drug money and other property has been expanded repeatedly, most notably by the 1984 Comprehensive Crime Control Act. The 1984 law allowed local and state authorities to seize the assets of suspected drug dealers, try the cases in federal court, and keep up to 90% of the loot for departmental use. Forfeiture cases are not considered criminal proceedings. In fact, no one need be charged with a crime at all, and so the hearings carry a lower standard of proof. Cases involving assets under $100,000 are handed, handled in administrative hearings, not reaching even civil court. Most questionable still, more questionable still, prosecutors sometimes reduce charges when defendants agree to surrender their assets without a fight. Racial profiling innovator and Volusia, Florida County Sheriff Bob Vogel used these laws quite adeptly. Between 1989 and 1992, he confiscated $8 million in property based on searches conducted during motor vehicle stops. Of those who forfeited their property, 85% were black and 75% were never charged with a crime. The forfeiture law provided the local cops with a major incentive for prioritizing drug busts. As the money came in, many departments reinvested it in the drug war, upgrading their arsenals with military hardware. But in addition to the financial gains, drug raids promised political and bureaucratic benefits as well. Asset forfeiture opened another major source of funding for local departments, making the police less reliant on their local government's budget processes, and therefore also less subject to the control of mayors and city councils. It's hard to overstate the impact drug policy has had on policing. The national obsession with controlling drug use has provided a rationale for racial profiling, legitimized prison expansion and draconian sentencing laws, eroded constitutional protections against warrantless searches, promoted federal intervention and military involvement in local law enforcement, and helped enormously to militarize the police. It has also provided a convenient justification for widening the scope of police activity. Community Policing – The Return of Officer Friendly if the aggressive armored paramilitary unit represents one face of contemporary policing, the other is that of the smiling, chatty cop on the beat. 
One is the image of militarization, the other is that of community policing. Community policing, like militarization, is a jargon term. It is loosely defined as and sometimes used to mean only something desirable. Community policing is thrown around quite a lot by both critics of the police and by the cops' policy-level allies, but the term is mostly used by those who advocate its programs. What precisely they advocate is the matter of quite some controversy. Community policing grew out of innovations developed during the 1970s. The 70s and 80s were periods of extreme experimentation in law enforcement, as departments across the country struggled to recover from the defeats of the 1960s. As the years progressed, the new ideas were either refined or abandoned, and those remaining gradually coalesced under the rubric of community policing. This legacy, plus the community policing premise that law enforcement strategies should be adapted to local conditions and local needs, has resulted in a baffling variety of programs operating under the same label, and has made generalizing about them very difficult. Community policing largely evolved from the earlier notion of team policing, under which a group of officers shared responsibility for a particular area. From this base, community policing slowly came to incorporate novelties like decentralized command, storefront mini-stations, directed rather than random patrol, neighborhood watch groups, permanent assignments, neighborhood liaisons, door-to-door -door surveys, public forums, crime prevention training, citizen advisory boards, meetings with religious and civic leaders, foot patrols, bike patrols, police-sponsored community activities and social functions, a focus on minor offenses, educational and recreational programs for young people, citizen volunteer opportunities, and community organizing projects. Common features seemed to connect many of the more successful programs, and these slowly formed the basis for the community policing perspective. Sociologist Gary Cordner groups the elements of community policing into philosophical, strategic, tactical, and organizational dimensions. Philosophically, community policing is characterized by the solicitation of citizen input, the broadening of the police function, and the attempt to find solutions based on the values of the local community. Organizationally, community policing requires that departments be restructured, such as to decentralize command, flatten hierarchies, reduce specialization, civilianize staff positions, and encourage teamwork. Strategically, community policing efforts reorient operations away from random patrols and responding to 911 calls towards more directed, proactive, and preventive activities. This reorientation requires a geographic focus and encourages cops to pay attention to sources of disorder as well as to the crimes themselves. Tactics that sustain community policing efforts are those that encourage positive citizen interactions, partnerships, and problem solving. A 1994 report written by the Community Policing Consortium representing the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the National Sheriff's Association, and the Police Executive Research Forum, and the Police Foundation, and published by the Department of Justice, identifies two core components of community policing as, quote, community partnership and problem solving, unquote. Sociologists Jerome Skolnick and David Bailey concluded, based on a study of six police departments renowned as innovators and trendsetters, that the governing premise of community policing was, quote, that the police and the public are co-producers of crime prevention, unquote. By the early 1990s, community policing was the official religion of police nationwide, even if nobody knew exactly what it meant. Even Daryl Gates, the embattled and abrasive former chief of police in Los Angeles, explicitly advocated community policing in his 1992 memoir, which only underscores questions about the term's use. If the notorious LAPD has, as Gates insists, been practicing community policing since the 1970s, then what doesn't count as community policing? If the term covers everything, then does it mean anything? 
Perhaps I'm being unfair. After all, the LAPD did invent some of the paradigmatic community policing programs, including DARE, Drug Abuse Resistance Education, and the Neighborhood Watch. But the clash between the LAPD's uncivil image and that of the personable neighborhood beat cop gets to the heart of the confusion about what is and is not community policing. There's a difference between adopting standalone programs and taking on community policing as an overall organizational strategy. The Los Angeles Police Department may have recognized early on the need for community partnerships, but it, like most departments, has pursued these partnerships unevenly, haphazardly, and without changing the basic orientation of the police force. On the other hand, community policing is not at all incompatible with the hard-nosed militarized tactics for which Gates's department became famous or infamous. Of the two major strands of community policing programs, Peace Corps policing and order maintenance policing, the latter seems to actually promote just the sort of excess that Gates favored. Peace Corps policing, quote, emphasized community empowerment, cultivating constructive relationships with disenfranchised minority groups, and establishing partnerships between the police and the public. Unquote. The order, order maintenance model, quote, seeks to clean up a community proactively, thereby reducing the potential for crime and diminishing citizens' fears, unquote. Linking the two is an emphasis on problem solving and a sense that police business extends beyond the most basic matters of law enforcement. Hence, both approaches are proactive, prevention-oriented, concerned with the fear of crime as well as crime itself, and generally fit within the framework of community policing as it is laid out above. Where differences exist, they tend to be matters of emphasis rather than principle. In fact, Peace Corps and other maintenance approaches are sometimes employed in tandem, and together or separately, they dovetail with the militarization to form a coherent strategic whole. To resolve this seeming paradox, we should consider what the police hope to accomplish with community policing, and what advantages they take from their community partnerships. Community Policing and Policy Communities The first thing to notice about community policing is the degree to which it seeks to undo the reforms of the progressive and professional eras. These earlier reformers sought to centralize command, introduce bureaucratic management practices, close neighborhood precincts, do away with foot patrols, narrowly focus on crime control, increase specialization within the departments, and generally sever the connections between the police and the public. These efforts were never fully successful, but that's hardly the point. The point is that they move in exactly the opposite direction from many of the recommendations made by community policing advocates. To make sense of this reversal, we need to recognize that community policing seeks to address a different set of problems than those faced by the progressives or the professionals. There's no longer any need for capitalists to wrest city governments away from Tammany-style political machines, and police unionization has done more to improve the typical patrol officer's standard of living than the move toward professionalization ever did. More subtly, the police have largely established their institutional autonomy and have developed extensive means to defend it. In fact, since the late 60s, they've moved beyond their quest for independence and have begun to pursue political power. Here perhaps we can discern a pattern. Historically, the means of social control have adapted in response to crises, to challenges faced by the existing authorities. Slave patrols evolved gradually in response to slave revolts. The rise of capitalism produced new class tensions and higher demands for order. One result was the modern police. Is it a coincidence, then, that the three most pronounced trends in contemporary policing, unionization, militarization, and community policing, gained their momentum during a period of profound social tension and overt political conflict? This puts it dramatically, but it's no secret that community policing arose 
as a response to the crises of the 1960s. Society was in a state of upheaval, and elites were racked with panic at one police plaza and Parker Center no less than in the White House and the Pentagon. The immediate clash was resolved through a combination of concessions and repression, but before the fight was even over, the authorities were training for a rematch. The shortcomings of social control in the civil rights and anti-war periods are not difficult to discern. Misplaced intelligence efforts meant that the security forces were often caught unawares by rebellions, and heavy-handed crowd control tactics exacerbated disorder where it arose. Meanwhile, government lawlessness, both domestically and in the field of foreign policy, eroded citizens' faith in the system. The continuation of such conditions threatened to render the country ungovernable. The authorities had to reassess their approach to social control. The resulting police experiments, which eventually blended into the community policing approach, were born of the desire to correct for the shortcomings of the earlier bureaucratic professional model. They sought to build a bond between police and the public in hopes that this would increase police legitimacy, give them better access to information, intensify their penetration of community life, and expand the police mission. All of this, in theory, should make the populace easier to police and heighten the level of police control. The first task of any pol community policing strategist is to make police authority legitimate in the eyes of the community. Herman Goldstein, a community policing advocate, identifies, quote, the ultimate potential in community policing as, quote, the development of a reservoir of respect and support that could greatly increase the capacity of police officers to deal with problems with less need to resort to the criminal process or to the coercive force that officers derive from their uniform, their weapon, their badge, or the knowledge that they can summon reinforcements, unquote. The means by which this legitimacy is established are sometimes subtle. Even the mechanisms through which the community is supposed to voice its concerns often become forums for the police to promote their own agenda. The most common of these is the citizen survey. Under the guise of collecting information about neighborhood problems and community attitudes, the surveys carefully frame questions to reinforce the fear of crime and present the police as problem solvers. They also suggest a conservative view concerning the causes of crime, drugs, a tolerance for disorder, the people who commit crimes, young people, gang members, strangers, and the solutions to the crime problem, law enforcement. The surveys function twice in this regard, first in the collection of the data and then in the presentation of the results. Community meetings work the same way, turning an atmosphere and inclusiveness and participation to propagandistic ends. Quote, Although the meetings are supposedly held to deal with the community's concerns, these concerns are defined by police within the framework of how best to reduce crime. The communication is frequently a one-way lobby for the police and their concerns." Unquote. Other features of community policing, like foot patrols and storefront offices, serve to increase friendly contact between police and the residents in the neighborhoods they patrol. All of these practices, it is hoped, can reduce the friction between the cops and the community, encourage communication, build trust, and humanize the individual officers in the eyes of the neighborhood residents. When legitimacy is established, the police can rely more on the cooperation of the citizenry, rather than resorting to coercive force. Citizen participation, quote, can run the gamut from watching neighbors' homes to reporting drug dealers to patrolling the streets. It can involve participation in problem identification and problem-solving efforts, in crime prevention programs, in neighborhood revitalization, and in youth-oriented educational and recreational programs. Citizens may act individually or in groups, they may collaborate with the police, and they may even join the police department by donating their time as police department volunteers, reserves, or auxiliaries." Unquote. 
Moreover, the police are not just encouraged to mobilize individuals, but to draw existing civic groups into their efforts and, where necessary, to set up new organizations to provide the support they need. Hence, the newfound trust would give the police access to and influence over community resources that may have otherwise had their law enforcement potential overlooked, or that may have served as centers for resistance. It also provides the police department with additional leverage in which to further its agenda with the rest of the government. Goldstein, for one, specifically encourages police to act as organizers and advocates in the community. He writes, quote, After analyzing the problem, officers involved in these projects conduct an uninhibited search for alternative responses. They may settle on one of the responses identified above as commonly used in community policing, or they may go a step further, perhaps pressuring municipal agencies to carry out existing responsibilities, or to invest new resources in an area. They may push for changes in the policies of other government agencies or advocate legislation that would enable police to deal more effectively with a problem that clearly warrants arrest and prosecution." Unquote. Hence, community policing advances the autonomy of the institution and encourages police interference with the functions of the rest of the government. It provides an incentive to political action and threatens to blur the separation of powers and invert the principles of civilian control. The aim is to turn an ever-widening range of institutions into tools for law enforcement. This goal is made explicit in the tactics of third-party policing. Third-party policing occurs when the authorities convince or require an uninvolved individual or organization to take actions designed to minimize disorder or prevent crime. Popularized by the problem-oriented perspective, third-party policing often involves the use or threat of civil or administrative sanctions to force bar owners, landlords, social service agencies, and others in contact with criminal suspects or disorderly persons to apply pressure, such as to control their behavior. A bar owner, under threat of losing his liquor license, may agree to hire bouncers or eschew certain types of entertainment, e.g. nude dancers or hip-hop music. Landlords may be urged to install better lighting, report suspicious activity, and evict tenants whom the police deem to be problems. Social service agencies may be asked to exercise additional control over their clients. The police may also move further up the social ladder. If a social service agency proves uncooperative, its landlord or funding sources may also be asked to bring their influence to bear. Third-party policing, like many of the tactics that fall within the scope of community policing, operates by co-opting community res resources and existing sources of power. The Community Policing Consortium report puts it politely, quote, Community policing does not imply that police are no longer in authority or that the primary duty of preserving law and order is subordinated. However, tapping into the expertise and resources that exist within communities will relieve police of some of their burdens. Local government officials, social agencies, schools, church groups, business people, all those who work and live in the community and have a stake in its development, will share responsibility for finding workable solutions to problems that detract from the safety and security of the community." Unquote. In other words, community policing is a strategy for making the community's total expertise and resources available to the police. The ultimate goals of policing, the primary duty of preserving law and order, are unchanged, and police authority is not diminished, but community policing does allow some parts of the community to share in police power, acting as adjuncts to the police institution. Police power is extended further into the community, but the balance of power between the police and community remains heavily weighted, always in favor of the police. Former LAPD Chief William Parker complained, quote, I'm a policeman, not a social worker, unquote. Under the Community Police Cooperation Scheme, social workers, as well as teachers, public health officials, bus drivers, bartenders, landlords, could register the corresponding complaint. I'm not a cop. 
community policing, especially in the form of third-party policing, is less a matter of policing as social work than social work as policing, without the need for any Foucaultian camouflage. The ov overall result of these efforts is to increase the police role in the community, meaning that the coercive apparatus of the state will be more involved with daily life. The state and the police in particular will have more opportunities for surveillance and can exercise control in a variety of ways besides arrest, citations, or physical force. This shift can be made to sound like demilitarization, liberalization, or democratization, but it is instead just a smarter approach to repression. The goal of community policing is to reduce resistance before force is required. What we've traced out here is the path from legitimacy to hegemony. The ultimate goal of community policing is to increase the power of the police, and this represents the most stable limit on the community's role as co-producers of crime control. The police and the community may form a partnership, but the police always remain the senior partner. The demands of community policing may sound contradictory. The police are to rely on the community's support, but remain in control. Community input should shape police priorities, but without granting the community power. The corporatist model again becomes useful in understanding the police-community partnership. Santa Ana, California Police Lieutenant Hugh Mooney tells of his role in the neighborhood. Quote, This is my area. I'm their spokesman. I support them 100%. If I have to argue with them, I do it here and we work things out. Then, when I do go before my peers and superiors, I tell them exactly what my people feel. I represent them. Unquote. Of course, this is only half the equation. The other half is that Lieutenant Mooney also represents the Santa Ana Police Department to the residents of the neighborhood where he serves. He presents the organization's perspective, promotes its agenda, and couches its demands in acceptable terms. Where the police succeed in establishing such relationships and in using them to increase their power, they create what Martin J. Smith calls a policy community. Quote, Policy communities increase state autonomy by establishing the means through which state actors can intervene in society without using force. By integrating state and society actors, they increase the capabilities of the state to make and implement policy. They create state powers that would not otherwise exist, and, more importantly, they increase the autonomy of actors in a policy area by excluding other actors from the policy process. It is state actors who determine the rules of the games, the partnerships of policy, and the actors who will have access to the policy community." Unquote. Hence what may be presented in terms of democratic engagement and greater inclusion tends overall to favor the state's interests and reinforce the state's power. Negotiation and co-optation provide the means for the state to extend its influence. Thus, potential sources of resistance can be neutralized or even turned to the state's advantage by their incorporation into a policy community, in this case one centered around and dominated by the police department. In some sense, the client groups become incorporated into the state itself. It makes little difference whether the client organization is a police union, a social service agency, a church, a school, another governmental body, or a neighborhood watch group. By organizing on a sufficient scale, the police can greatly enhance their own power, not only over these agencies, but through them, while acquiring relatively few additional burdens for themselves. So long as the police maintain control over the network as a whole, no one component of it is likely to make demands that cannot be easily accommodated or safely ignored. This is the secret to a friendly police state. As the police more fully penetrate civil society and as they gain the cooperation of the citizenry and its various organizations, they become less reliant on their own access to violence. Or do they? Do they instead perhaps become ever less tolerant of resistance and disorder, ever more forceful in their own demands? 
the hard edge of community policing. In the wake of the Rodney King beating, the Christopher Commission noted with alarm that distrust of the police was commonplace, especially among black people and Latinos. As a remedy, the commission issued a broad slate of recommendations, many centering on the full adoption of a community policing perspective as the guiding philosophy of the LAPD. Giving credit where it was due, the commission's report listed already existing LAPD programs that made use of community policing strategies. The report specifically mentioned DARE, the short-lived community mobilization project, in which police attended block meetings and arranged for Boy Scout troops to remove graffiti, and Operation Cul-de-Sac. Quote, in Operation Cul-de-Sac, police erect barriers on streets in high-crime areas so that motorists cannot drive through the neighborhood. A most the most ambitious use of this program occurred in a 30-block area of the Newton District of South Central Los Angeles. The LAPD set up two cul-de-sacs in the section and erected small barriers on other streets. The zone was saturated with officers on foot, horse, and bicycle. Open to residents only and narcotics enforcement area signs were posted. The aim was to discourage drug dealers and gang members from driving through the area. At the same time, debris was removed from alleys and graffiti scrubbed off walls." Unquote. The Christopher Commission report went on to voice concerns about the intensive deployment of officers, the specific targeting of high crimes areas, the illusory nature of the reduction in crime, and citizen complaints that the area had been converted into an armed camp. But despite its reservations, the Commission saw value in the program, and more importantly, saw its place within the overall framework of community policing. This combination of militaristic tactics and community policing ideology is less mysterious than it might initially appear. The community policing focus on problem solving can easily tend towards a zero-tolerance approach with a strong emphasis on public order rather than on crime per se. Quote, zero-tolerance policing refers to the strict enforcement of all criminal and civil violations within a certain geographical hotspots, a code word for lower-income minority areas, using an array of aggressive tactics such as street sweeps, proactive enforcement of not just the law but community order, and a proliferation of drug raids on private residences. Unquote. The effect is to criminalize an ever-wider range of public order offenses and minor nuisances, some of which might not even really be illegal. Hence, standard features of urban life that may be previously have been considered mere irritations, inconveniences, annoyances, or eccentricities suddenly become matters for police attention. Worst of all, the new intolerance sometimes makes crimes out of the most human, humanizing, and humane parts of city life, the aspects that make it tolerable, or for some people, possible. Skateboarding, graffiti, loud parties, and other signs of disorder make cities more interesting than they would otherwise be. More importantly, though, the focus on public order can shut down soup kitchens and make the streets altogether uninhabitable for those who have nowhere else to live. In 1993, San Francisco Mayor and former police chief Frank Jordan introduced the Matrix program, which deliberately targeted the homeless for aggressive enforcement of quality-of-life laws. For two years, pre-dawn police raids broke up homeless camps in Golden Gate Park. Everywhere in the city, or elsewhere in the city, Shanty towns were leveled with bulldozers, and activists with food not bombs were repeatedly arrested for the crime of serving free food. Such efforts can push those already at the margins of society, the young, the poor, people of color, out of public spaces altogether, making room, it is hoped, for posh restaurants and trendy boutiques. Community policing is intimately connected with urban renewal, neighborhood revitalization, and ultimately gentrification. Consider the response of two academic advocates of community policing, Jerome Skolnick and David Bailey, to Santa Ana Police Chief Raymond Davis's efforts to make the destitute unwelcome in the downtown area. 
Davis formed an alliance with local business owners who pressured judges to if issue stiffer sentences for public order violations. Skalnik and Bailey don't pause to worry about the separation of powers or about private businesses interfering with the judiciary or about the human rights implications of targeting one class of people for prosecution to benefit another class, always targeting the poor for the benefit of the rich. Instead, our astute academicians consider removal of poor people as part and parcel of restoring order. And rather than addressing the social and economic causes of poverty, they go so far as to blame the poor for causing economic decline. Quote, Drunks loiter and sleep in front of stores, urinate in alleys, panhandle, and otherwise annoy the sort of person who might be interested in purchasing a meal, a pair of shoes, or a floor lamp in downtown Santa Ana. The more the downtown area became a haven for habitual drunks and transient street criminals, the more precipitous its decline. Unquote. Despite all the happy talk about community involvement and shared problem-solving, in practice certain populations generally get counted among the problems to be solved, rather than the community to be involved. Priorities identified by the community may suspiciously coincide with the interests of business owners and real estate developers. And that's the end of the first part of Chapter 9.